Thank you for coming, first and foremost. Um, if you were here for the pre-conference, you were blessed by his speaking and his teaching on Abraham and sanctification. It was awesome, and there will be recordings available on, uh, on the website. And uh, before uh, Brian comes, I'm just going to pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together. We're going to go until 9.30, and then we're going to have uh, in the fellowship hall some cookies and uh, some more fellowship to hang out and talk. So please join me in prayer. Dear Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this day. And uh, we just praise you, Lord, for these men that have come to speak for us, and we praise you for answering our prayers, and, and thankfully, Lord, you have given them words to speak, and they have brought your word to us in a powerful way and, and caused us to look at the gospel and, and with more amazement and wonder, and just thankful that we have that to transform our lives. And Lord, I ask right now that you take the words that uh, Brian has prepared for us this evening and you make them your words and you make them words of power and allow your spirit to have him boldly proclaim them here and touch our hearts, Lord. And take this word in James that you have given us and let him uh, unpack it for us and let it be an encouragement to us so that we can better understand your gospel and proclaim it more boldly and live it more strongly everywhere we go. We love you, Lord, and pray in your son's name. Amen. Ryan? And turn it Oh, there we go. All right. Well, thanks for moving. Uh, this pulpit, or... Lectern, thank you, thank you. Um, it's pretty, pretty cool because if you hadn't moved, I could have done this to each one of you, right? Like that, sort of three or four minutes each until I made the, made the rounds around the room. That is all right. I need one of those in my, one of my classrooms at Southern. Take it with the back row guys and see what they're doing on the internet during my class. Um, <laughs> I'll just stop right there with that story. Um, faith alone, right? It's one of the so-called solas, right? I mean, most of us don't speak Latin, but we like to say one of the so- one of the alones. I guess that just doesn't sound as cool to say one of the alones. Um, you know, it's a phrase that we all use: faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone, Scripture alone. But of course, this phrase, this phrase, faith alone, only appears once in the entire Bible. Only once, as a phrase. And it appears in James, only. Nowhere else. And it appears in James 2.24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Paul doesn't use the phrase faith alone. Peter doesn't use the phrase faith alone. I mean, you get the point. I'm not going to keep naming everybody. Now, of course, the idea is implied all over the place. And it is, you know, for all intents and purposes, it is said in the Bible, right? It's not like you, I mean, it's not, I mean, there's a good reason. There's a good reason why when we read that phrase in James, we think, now hold on for a second. 
right? Because even though Paul doesn't say the, he doesn't say the, uh, he doesn't come right out and say, use the same words as James, you know, there's a good reason why when we read James 2.24, we get a little nervous. Um, and we start to think, now hold on, and there's, you know, this is the reason why, and it's famous, I don't really even like to quote it. Uh, it's one of the reasons why Luther, of course, at one point in his life, uh, called James a strawy epistle, or epistle made of straw. Now you have to remember though, right? Uh, imagine, imagine if you were somebody who talked a lot and somebody walked around basically scribbling down everything that you said at any given moment and then sort of 400 years later, well, you know, 100, a couple hundred years later, it's written down. This is what sort of happened to Luther. Luther's students were with him constantly and he would, he would be sitting in places and having dinner and doing other sorts of things that Luther liked to do. And uh, people would scribble down almost anything he wrote. So we get a lot of snippets from Luther, a lot of times out of context. But whatever the case, uh, we know that later on he softened up towards James. Uh, but you know that the, the so-called tension or distinction or whatever you want to call it between James and Paul has been a tension and uh, sort of a cause for more than a little bit of problems in the history of the Christian church in terms of interpretation. Now, if you come from the sort of circles I come from, the, um, the, it's not that big a problem because, of, poor, of course, Paul is right, and what we need to do is make James agree with him. Right? I mean, in heaven, there's going to be a big line of people who are going to be made. It'll be a glorious made, but they're going to be made to stand there and wait in line so they can one by one apologize to James um, for the way they talked about him and the way they treated him like he was the JV apostle. Um, you know, and he's just going to stand there and it's, everybody's going to love it and he's going to give them sort of a glorified verbal beatdown. And they'll be like, this is great, I deserve every bit of it. This is the best beatdown I've ever had. And he'll just and he'll go through the line. Because we do kind of, sometimes we do. Sometimes we sort of treat James like, well, you know, you have to remember, you know, James is not Paul. Uh, but, you know, our job, is not, our job is not to make James conform to Paul or Paul conform to James. Uh, but our job is to try to understand how can two apostles seemingly have, to, ha, seemingly have such different things to say. And, uh, you know, people have built their whole theology on Paul and other people have built their whole theology on what James has to say. And some people have used one have used one to uh, try to say that, well, what Paul is saying, what James doesn't really mean what he says. You have to understand, James says, that's not what he's saying. Like, well, that, that's really bad because he says all kinds of stuff in this book. Does he not mean what he says there too? <clears throat> when James says every good and perfect gift comes from above, does he not mean that? Does he mean something different by that? Uh, you know, when, when James says, you know, the tongue is, has the power to set things on fire, does he mean something different? By, does, that not mean, does that not mean what, it, what he says? Is it, does he have some secret language I need to be keyed into? Or, or is it only at this point that James doesn't mean what he says? Right? I mean, when, in, when James opens his book, and uh, he's, he's talking about, and he's, he opens his book, remember, now, first of all, remember, James is writing before Paul did. James is an earlier book than anything, that Paul, than anything that Paul wrote. And James is writing to a Jewish Christian um, context. A little bit different than the context Paul wrote to. But you know, nothing sounds so much like Romans 5, 1 to 5, than James 1, 2 through 8, or at least 2 through 4. 
It's exactly the same. His perspective on suffering, exactly the same. same it's the same, uh, it's the same um, perspective that, that Peter has. I mean, read, read Romans 5, 1 to 5 sometime, and read James 1, 2 to 4, and you'll think, man, is James, does, doesn't, doesn't James mean what he says there? Maybe that means something different, too. Well, of course, it doesn't mean something different than what James says. And what James says in chapter 2 is not anything different than what he says. And it's, it's my view that James and Paul don't even mean anything different by justification. Some people will say, well, what you have here is two different views of justification. One is emphasizing, one is emphasizing the, the, uh, the declaration and one is emphasizing the later vindication. And I think, well, yeah. But the fact of the matter is, they're both doing that. Not one really more than the other. They're both doing that. They're both, they're both emphasizing two, both of those things because you can't really split justification down between justification sometime in the past and then the vindication of that declaration later. You, you can't sort of split those two things up. It's one big thing. It's one big thing. I think, if, what, we, I think what we have to see between James and Paul is a difference in emphasis not so much on justification, but a different emphasis on the word faith and what faith means. Because one of them is talking about true faith. The other is talking about a faith that's not even faith at all. In fact, it's the kind of faith that a demon has. The big distinction between James and Paul is not over justification. The big distinction is over what they're talking about in regard to faith. And that's what leads them to talk about different things in regard to justification. And I think, I, think that we can, I think that we can see that. What I'm saying here tonight, of course, isn't like, you know, groundbreaking or something that nobody's ever said before. Uh, but, you know, I think there's probably been, if, if you're like me, you've, you've maybe preached James 2 and you've thought about it quite a bit before the time came, about what you're going to say and how you're going to explain it. Uh, or maybe you've been in discussions with people and they've said, you know, how do you, how do you reconcile James and Paul? You know, and if I've, I can remember being in conversations like that where, you know, I would sort of go round and round and round and round. And I guess at the end I kind of thought, well, that's not really what I, all of a sudden I'm talking about myself. Well, that's not really what I mean. And then what do you mean? Like, well, if I had to admit it, I really don't know. And so, you know, we've just, we just feel this tension. And so a few years ago, a few years ago, honestly, I just kind of got tired of just kind of giving pat answers. And I thought, you know, what I better do is maybe just take a closer look at it as I got more interested in writing on things about imputation and justification. Uh, and I kept running across more and more authors that would sort of pit the two against each other and talk about, you know, sort of rival traditions in the church or, you know, that what James is dealing with is a, uh, a false form of Pauline theology. And that, that's possible that he is. It's possible he is, but we don't know that he is. Right? I mean, some people assert it like it's fact, but we don't, we don't have any real... You can infer from what James is saying that he's just sort of run into people who have, you know, kind of, it's like Paul on steroids or something like that. It's gone way over the top. It's possible. But it doesn't have to be that. It doesn't have to be that. If we remember, James is not really going after sort of justification in the way Paul is. James is going over the difference between true faith and faith, and not fault, not even, not even sort of bad faith, but true faith and no faith at all. That's what James is really all about. 
And I think, I think we can see that. Now, before you get to, before you get to James 2.14, and that's where all the trouble starts, it's really clear from reading James that he doesn't believe that what we have in our relationship before God is based on what we do. Now, if you just jump right in in chapter... If, if we act like James is just chapter 2, sort of 14 to 26, we can maybe come away with that conclusion. But if you read James up to that point, you can, you can understand and see... You can understand and see that he doesn't believe that uh, what we have, we have as a result of our own works. I mean, when he's talking about suffering... Right? If anybody lacks the wisdom to understand the profound message that James has about suffering and uh, God's, uh, you know, the divine sort of source of suffering and the divine purpose in suffering, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. In other words, God doesn't, God doesn't reproach you for not having already the very thing you can only get from him. That is the wisdom to understand this particular view of suffering. But that wisdom comes from God. And as I said before, you know, he, says, he says that you know, every, every good, every good uh, gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to, his, due, due to change. He brought us, uh, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Well, chapter 1, verses 17 and 18 make it really difficult to believe that, 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 James, that James believes we are justified by works in the way, we, the, in the way say, Paul says you're not justified by works in, in chapter 4. I think, it, I, think it, I think it becomes clearer and clearer as you, as you go through. So when we, uh, as, we're, as we're coming to chapter 2, or to the, yeah, we'll just start sort of middle of chapter 2. One of the things that James wants to address is that they have this problem, they have this problem in this church that he's in, of showing favoritism. And favoritism's not one of the big sins that we make much of. You know, they're, they're, they have people who are, you have rich sort of people coming in and they're showing them special, special, uh, special treatment and treating them in such a way. And that's one of those sins we tend to overlook. We kind of do, right? We, we tend to kind of overlook that kind of sin. That's not one of our big go-after sins. Uh, but of course... Um, among the apostles, such, such sins were horrendous, in their view, right? Because this idea of sort of singling out certain people for special treatment over against other people works absolutely against the one thing all the apostles talk about all the time, and that is the unity of the body. So this idea of favoritism, which we often tend, as evangelical conservatives, we often tend to overlook, this is a huge deal for them. Huge. Because they can't, they, can't, they can't conceive, they can't conceive of believers, the believers in a church, not striving after unity and not each understanding the good of the other above their own. Now, don't hear me say that they, that they were thinking about, say, uh, you know, unity at the in a sort of lowest common denominator. Not that at all. Of course, they mean unity in the gospel. But James, James is upset. James is upset about how they're showing how they're showing um, favoritism towards each other. What James is upset about is their actions are not matching their confession. That's what he's upset about. And so he can say to them, what you need to do is be not hearers, but doers of the word. And it's difficult to get upset with James about that because James got that phrase from somebody else, namely, Jesus. 
He's following the tradition of Jesus, who said things like, a tree is known by its fruit. Uh, and you can look at Matthew, I won't read these, but if you look at Matthew 7.24, Matthew 7.26, Luke 6.47 and 49, those are parallels. You'll see the parallel to be, not, not just be do, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. What James, is a, what James is all about is he wants to get after this problem of people presume, presume, sorry, presuming to have a relationship with God on what looks like the basis of words alone, on the basis of a confession alone, or when, say, a confession doesn't match the outward expression of it. And that's what, he, that's what he's going after. So, let's turn to, verse, let's turn to chapter 2. Let's turn to chapter 2 and look at verse 14. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now I want to stop right there because in one way, all you really need is verse 14 to understand everything that James is saying. Now, and it all happens in a little English word, that. Now, in your translation, it could be that the that, the, that, it's hard to say, the that, the word that, that's better, it's easier, is maybe in italics, slanted one way or another. And that's because, that's because in the, in the, in, there is no word that in the Greek text. Uh, it's in English, it's, but it's, you know, here, this is the ESV. It's added in most, nor, in most modern translations because, because it needs to be there in English to translate what James is saying. Because, think about it, James says, if someone says he has faith but does not have works. So James is talking about a particular kind of faith. He's talking about faith in a particular way. And so it only makes sense that he turns around and then says, can that faith, say not can faith in general, but can that kind of faith, what faith? The faith that says, the, the faith that, uh, that, um, that claims somebody who claims to have faith but does not have works. Can that kind of faith save him? Then he goes on, here's an example, he says. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one, one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my works, show you my faith by my works. And then, you believe God is one. Good. But you do well. I always like to say good. You believe God is one. That's great. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Well, that's a very powerful statement from James. Because what James is saying there is, you believe, you have an orthodox view of God. It's almost for sure that James is talking here for, about what? A confession from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. You believe that God is one. It's, it, he may not be, but I really, I really do think that that is what he's referring to. You believe that God is one. And he's saying, that's great, that's awesome. So do the demons. And that's what he has to say to them. It's not enough. It's not enough, he says to them, to have an... You can have the most orthodox confession of them all. And in this context, there is no more orthodox confession than the Shema. 
Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. He's like, you believe God's one? That is awesome, you should. But don't forget, if that's what you got, you have risen up to the level of demons. Congratulations. If that's all there is. If your faith, I'm not going to do air quotes one more time, I promise. If I have to hold on to this thing and not let go of it, I'm not going to do that again. Um, if, you think that, if you think your faith, which you proclaim, and which, you, which is on display, if somebody comes to your door and says, hey, I need some food, and you just sort of bless them and send them on their way, and you turn around and you have the world's most orthodox confession of God, if that's all it is, guess what? That's not faith. I think that's what James is saying. The difference between James and Paul is James is talking about faith that is not faith. And so when, when, he's, when, he's, talking about, when, he said, when he's talking about being justified by works, I don't think he means we stand before God on the basis of what, he, what, I, what we do. I think what James is talking about is what true faith looks like. That true, what true faith looks like is not just a blessing on an empty stomach, right? Somebody's hungry, a blessing is, doesn't really fill them up. It's nice to bless people. That's a good thing to do. But it doesn't fill their stomachs if they're hungry. It's good and, and, and completely right to have an orthodox view of God. But if your orthodox view of God is just words... It's just a confession. Well, the demons can confess who God is. In fact, in fact, if you read the Gospels, in spite of all the confusion around Jesus, who is this? Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this Mary's son? Don't we know his brothers? Who is this guy? Where do you get this authority? There's all these questions, even from his closest friends, but there's always one group of people in the, in the whole Gospels who never, not people, there's always one group in the Gospels, who never have a question about who is this. Ever. Right from the very beginning. Right from the very beginning. I mean, just think of the Gospel of Mark. Right? One of the subtexts, the subtitle of the Gospel of Mark could be, Who is this? But there's one group that understands right from the beginning who this is. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of the Most High God? It's the demons. They're the ones who know. I'm not saying James is referring to any of those things there, but that's the, kind of, that's the kind of thing that James is comparing this empty, void, null faith to, is the faith that the demons have where they understand who they're dealing with. They can say, Jesus of Nazareth, son of... I mean, that's a pretty high confession of Jesus. That's the highest confession there is in the Gospels of Jesus. Son of the Most High God. Right? That's right up there with Peter saying, you are the Christ, in Mark chapter 8, Caesarea Philippi. In terms of the words, in terms of what's being said, it's one of the most orthodox things said about Jesus. Now, of course, the, de- the demons, it doesn't, have, it doesn't affect them. Whether it could or affect them or not is beside the point right now. But it, they don't have faith in him. They're not trusting in him. There's no change. There's nothing. It's just a confession. It's knowledge alone that expresses itself in words. And I think that's what James is saying. That kind of empty faith, that can't, that can't save you. And he goes on to say, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now, if you're in a Jewish context, or even in our context, 
and you want to really shake people up, and you want to really prove your point, you get Abraham. Now, if you were a reader of Paul only, ever, and you were reading James for the very first time, and you hear James say, hey, do you want to be shown something, and you think he's going to go to the Scripture? The last person that you're going to guess that he's going to choose to prove his point in this chapter is the one he chooses. The only exception to that is the next one that he chooses. He goes right to Abraham. Right? Abraham's Paul's go-to guy. Romans 4. Twice. Galatians 3. Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. Right? One of the hallmark texts in the Bible for justification by faith alone. And it should be. Rightly so. But that's Paul's go-to text to prove what? Romans 4, 1 to 8. Abraham was justified by work... By, <laughs> whoops. James... Yeah. Let's dub that out. Um, just put a beep there or something. I'd rather have them think I said something like that. Um, in in, in chapter... No, seriously, I would. Uh, in, in Romans 1, 4 to 8... One, Romans 1, 4 to 8, Paul uses that text, Genesis 15, 6, to say what? That James was justified by faith totally apart from his works. So here's James saying what he has to say, and he's like, you want to, you want to, you want to know what I'm talking about? Let's just think about Abraham. So readers of Paul are just trembling now. Was, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. You're like, oh, it's Paul's text. What's he doing? He must not mean what he says. He must mean something different than the words he's using. And he was called the friend of God. And here it comes. You see... That a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. <laughs> and now, 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 if you, now, you, now you really consider yourself in sort of this Jewish Christian background. He, now he pulls out, look who he goes to next. You got Father Abraham, father of the nation, prostitute. That's the next person. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, if, if, in, if I'm right about verse 14, and I think that I am, that when James says, can that faith save him? If some, the faith that somebody just claims to have, but it doesn't show itself. If I'm right in saying that James says, can that kind of faith, not faith, but that kind of faith, empty faith, can, faith that confesses only but shows no, no evidence, a tree that bears no fruit, if you might, you might sort of as a, if we might take from another famous speaker in the Bible. If that's right, and I think it is, I really do, 
And if James is comparing that, oh, I did it, can't help it. If James is comparing that kind of faith to the faith that demons have, then, what does James, then how is James speaking of faith in this chapter or in this section? As not faith, like the way Paul says, justified by faith. You, you see what I mean? I hope, I hope that makes sense. I mean, it can get a little bit complicated just from the, the number of times I say the word faith and other things. But if, if, James is here not, if James is not talking about faith the way we talk about justified by faith alone, if he's talking about a faith that's not just sort of a, a faith that needs to be worked on or a faith that's just somehow you know, needs to be tweaked or a faith that's just misguided, but if he's talking about faith that is not faith at all, it's just sort of agreement to some things or just confession, an empty confession about things like the way a demon might do. Then when you see, when he says you're not justified by faith, if he means that kind of faith, we'd say, that's exactly right. You are not justified by that kind of faith. Because James isn't just talking about faith in general. And I think that's one of the things we can miss. That's what I, thought, that's what I think I missed in this chapter forever, is that James isn't just talking about faith generally. He's not just making big blanket statements about faith. He's making blanket statements, no, sorry, he's making specific statements about what? This particular kind of faith that's not faith at all. And I think, I think if that's right, and I think it is, if that's right, then that helps us, I think, understand what James is getting at. And then if you consider the kind of problems he's facing in this church, like favoritism, for instance, and he reminds them, he reminds them that, you know, the whole law that is summed up that you shall love your neighbors yourself. There's another popular New Testament writer, two others, but one in particular that might surprise us, who says the whole law is summed up in this, you will love your neighbors yourself. And that's none other than the Apostle Paul. In Galatians of all places. So anyway, I think if we start there, and if we start off with this understanding that, what James, that James is not writing a commentary or a biblical theology on a biblical theology of faith, that he's not just, it's not a systematic theology of faith where he's like, okay, I'm going to break it down in all of its parts. What James is going after is faith that's not faith. It's that kind of faith that can't justify, but it's that kind of faith through which no one can be justified because it's not faith. It's empty. It's just an, it's an empty confession. It's no, more, it's no more than the faith, there, okay, forget, I'm not even going to try not to do it. It's no more than the faith of the demons who says, we know who you are, son of the most high God. That's the kind of faith that I think that James is going after. And so then James goes to this Genesis 15, 6 text, right? Abraham believed God is reckoned to him as righteousness. Central text in the Bible. Why is it so central? It's because it's the first time in the Bible, I mentioned this earlier today if you were here, it's the first time in the Bible the word faith ever appears. It's never explicit. Until you get to Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed, God and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Up to that point, it's always implied, but never stated. The first time faith appears explicitly, it appears coupled together with this word righteousness. And I think that's, I think that's why it appears there for the first time. We know that's not the first time Abraham believed. The writer of the Hebrew, Hebrews makes it clear. By faith, Abraham left his homeland. But the first time the word appears in the pages, in the text of the scripture, appears there in Genesis 15, 6, when it's shown 
that the declaration of righteousness, that God declares somebody to be righteous, that is, he, God, declares somebody, God declares somebody to have the status of a person who has in all ways fulfilled God's will. God declares Abraham to be that on the basis of faith and not, in fact, on what he's done. And so James quotes that text, but then James quotes that, quotes that text, but what does he talk about in terms of Abraham? What's the story James talks about? James doesn't actually talk about Genesis 15:6. He talks about something else from the life of Abraham. What is it? Isaac, Genesis 22. So James talks about Genesis 22 and then quotes Genesis 15:6 and says, "You see? You see what I'm talking about? Now, here's what I think James is doing. But before we say that, I want to, before, we, before, before I say that or talk about that, I want to show you somebody else in the Bible who does the exact same thing, who, who says something very, very similar about Genesis 15:6 that James does. And it's James' good friend, Paul, in Romans 4. Because there are two quotes of Genesis 15:6 in Romans 4, not just one. Let's go look at both of them really quickly. All right, the first, the first quote you'll find in verse 3. Right? Paul's been talking about justification by faith and showing that this is the only way one can be right before God. And then he says, all right, you want proof that my, my theology is not new. I didn't make this up. I didn't just sort of come up with this when I was out in the desert for all those years. I'm just telling you, here's how God's always been at work. If you want proof positive, prime example... Abraham, our father. How was he right before God? By faith. He was justified by faith. And he quotes Genesis 15, 6. But sometimes, though, sometimes we, sometimes we don't get to the end of Romans 4 when we're talking about justification. Sometimes we end there, at, at, or around verse 8, after the, after the quote, after, after, um, after Psalm 32, we sometimes pull up a little short. But Paul's going to quote Genesis 15, 6 again. And he's going to quote Genesis 15:6 again after what? After he talks about Abraham doing things like this, not wavering in unbelief, in believing in the one who gives life from the dead, who creates something out of nothing. Because remember, between the promise, between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise, many, many, many years go by. And, and Paul talks about, he, he says, you know, he grew strong in the faith. Paul goes on, Paul quotes Genesis 15:6, and then goes to show and talk about Abraham's persevering life or his perseverance and then says the most strange thing in chapter in verse 22 of chapter 4 look look at it he talks about James not i mean sorry James he talks about Abraham growing strong in the faith and not wavering and you know giving glory to God and all these things and says you see that is why what's why that is why it was reckoned to him as righteousness what do you mean that's why what do you mean, Paul? Paul, you just said, you just said that Abraham, apart from his works, was declared to be righteous. And you quoted Genesis 15:6. And now you're talking about Abraham laying hold of God by faith and persevering and continuing on, even though he's about 100 years old, as I always like to say, past his sell-by date. And when he considered the bareness of Sarah's womb, she can't have children. 
No distrust made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. It's clear that Paul's not talking about just sort of a moment in time. Like a, just one moment snapshot. It's, I think it's, it grew strong in the faith. It's hard to conceive of that as just a, a moment. It could be, I suppose. It's a strange way to talk about it. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Then verse 22, right? Why does Paul start? It would be so much easier if Paul didn't start this one. That is why his faith was counted to him as right. What, why? What's why? What's the why that Paul's talking about? He's talking about everything he just said. Here's why. Abraham, why was Abraham uh, declared to be righteous? Counted to be, why did God count faith to him as righteousness? Well, I just told you. He didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was good as dead, etc. And so you kind of have a, so which is it, Paul, question two. In Romans 4. The, so the same sort of question that often hovers around James, if you read Romans 4 and just, just, just read it, the same kind of question pops up. Now here's what I think is going on. And maybe I can, if I stop, or what speaker ever stops early, right? That's just a, something to make people think he really is. But you know, he's, you know I'm not going to. Um, here's what I think is going on. Paul and James are talking about the same person, obviously, Abraham, but they're taking two different views of Abraham's life, both of which are absolutely legitimate. Paul... See, which way is he? Let's see. I want to do it from your perspective. Okay. Paul is out here in the desert at the tent when, uh, in Horeb. When, 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 when God comes and uh, says, you know what, Eleazar is not going to be your heir. And I know you're complaining right now about, you know, God, what are you going to do for me? I still don't have, you still haven't given me a child. And, and God says, look up at the sky, stars and count them if you, if you can. So, so, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham, Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is sort of standing there. And then he's looking that way. So Paul is sort of starting, Paul is beginning with the declaration that Abraham is righteous by faith alone, not by works. And then he's looking out that way towards Abraham's life. James, on the other hand, is up on Mount Moriah. He's standing here on the mountain, and he's standing there with Abraham and Isaac as Abraham is taking the child of the promise, his only son. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Right? In language in, language, in, 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 language in Genesis 22 that sounds ex- almost exactly like the kind of language that God the Father speaks about his son in the Gospels. You are my beloved son, and you I'm well pleased. So God says to Isaac, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and take him up on that mountain and sacrifice him. And James is up there on the mountain where Abraham has just walked up, and if you read Genesis 22, Genesis 22 is all about Abraham's, um, Abraham's steadfastness and faith. It, I mean, the, the message of Genesis 22, Abraham got up, he called his servants, he saddled up, got the materials, rode to the mountain, told the servants to wait, took the boy, went up to the top, built an altar, tied his son down. Right? The weight of the story is really clear if you read the narrative. The weight of the story is really clear. You can feel the emotional weight of it. There's no doubt about that. And we should. If we, if we don't, we've misread it. 
But, what's ex- but that's implicit, right? That's implicit in the story. What's explicit in the story is Abraham taking those steps. It doesn't talk about Abraham, sort of, it doesn't talk about the emotion he's going through. Those are implied, obviously. It doesn't talk about the struggle and the strain and the heaviness and the weight that was on him that day. No doubt, unbelievable strain and weight. Had to be, had to be. But what Genesis 22 talks about is Abraham obeying God. I mean, just think of it. And so I think James is standing up there. And he's talking to people who claim to have faith but show no evidence of it. And are in danger because they show no evidence of it. In other words, they, 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 don't, they don't seem to have faith. And there's nothing more dangerous for the Christian than seemingly not having faith because there's only one way. And so James is looking at, their, James is looking at these displays of empty faith and he says, look, I'm standing at Moriah with Abraham and Isaac. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. And you know what this shows me? That that word, now James looks back. Paul's down there, James up here, they're looking at each other. James looks back to the desert and says, You see, that declaration that God made, that Abraham believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to his righteousness, that wasn't empty words. That wasn't an empty, that wasn't, that wasn't an empty uh, declaration. God spoke the truth about Abraham, right? That's what, I mean, God claims, Isaiah 45, I am the Lord, there is no other. I speak the truth, I'm the one who declares what is, I speak the truth and declare what is right. That's the message of Isaiah 45. And I think that's what James is saying. What God said about Abraham is true. Abraham had not demon faith, not empty faith, not faith that claims to have faith, not claim, faith that just claims to have an orthodox view of God or whatever else, but real true faith in God that shows itself, shows itself in the fruit of faith. And so when I think when James is talking about works, justified by works, he's talking about, I think, the works that flow from true faith, not dead faith that can't do anything, that's just dead. And so I, I think that's what he means when he talks about, you know, when you, when you see that, he, you, when he says you see his his, his faith was fulfilled or completed by his works. I don't think that James is saying, I don't think that James is saying, Abraham's faith was pretty good. It was pretty good. But he just kind of had to kick a little bit of works in, do his bit. Um, you know, you do your bit, God will do the rest, or something like that. That's not what James is saying. I think what James, when he, James says completes it, I think he, what he means is this. And this is the way the, the word complete is often used in the, in the Bible, and that is, brings it to its appointed place of fulfillment, to what it's supposed to be, to what it's supposed to look like. Right? When Jesus, when Jesus says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, what's he saying? He's like, I'm here. I am here. This is the appointed fulfillment of the law. You're looking at him. I've come to fulfill the law. I am it. I think I said that right. James is saying the same thing. Abraham's works, Abraham's works didn't make, I mean, Abraham's works didn't create his faith. They showed that what he had was true faith. That justifies. 
It's just that, that, that James, in his context, he's not, James isn't going after some kind of situation, right, where you have Judaizers coming to town telling people that, yeah, faith in Jesus is good, but you need some Moses in there, right? That's what Paul's facing. Paul's facing these guys who come to town, they're like, yeah, yeah, Jesus. I'll, we're all for it. But don't forget Moses. You've got to have some Moses. And Paul's like, you better not have any Moses because, number one, nobody was ever saved by Moses in the first place. So if you're going to Moses, strike one. It was never meant for salvation. Oh, and here's the other thing. That covenant, over. Strike two, you're out. That covenant, never meant for salvation in and of itself, by itself, doesn't provide anything. Except what? Condemnation. Because it shows up, trans, it shows up trans, transgressions. But even worse than that, and this is exactly the message of the writer of the Hebrews. Even, that, that, was only, that, that covenant was only ever temporary. It was provisional. It was pointing to something else. In fact, it wasn't even just pointing forward. It was pointing up to a heavenly reality that was to come later. Right? So that when the writer of the Hebrews, he looks at the whole Old Covenant system, he doesn't just see it as sort of like a straight path from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. He sees it as a light that shines up to something that's going to be revealed later. But his message is the same. You can't have a little Moses. Besides, a little Moses doesn't even go a long way. Because the blood of bulls and goats can't forgive sins. So if you want to go back to that, don't you understand you're going back to something that could never ultimately forgive sins anyway? Oh, and here's the other thing I forgot to tell you. It's over. You can't even find it. So you're doubly out of luck if that's what you want to do. And that's Paul's perspective. And that's what Paul's fighting against in Galatians and in Romans and in Philippians. But that is not what James is after. James isn't having trouble sort of with Judaizers coming to town. James is having trouble with people who are claiming to be Christians, but because of persecution, and, because, and they appear to be in poverty, There's some, their, their, their land seems to be getting taken away, all kinds of different things are going on. Uh, they're having some internal, internal strives, um, different things going on. What James is facing is a church that has some people in it who are starting to show signs of, say, illegitimate faith or false faith. That's a lot different situation than Paul is, than Paul is, Paul is writing to. And so they're talking, that's why I think they can both legitimately use Abraham, they can both legitimately talk about justification, but seem to say some, so, such different things. It's not that they're saying different things, it's they're applying the same thing to different circumstances. And, and again, if you look at Romans 4, there though, the circumstances and the way Paul speaks is not that much different than what than what uh, James is talking about. Now, does this answer every single... Like, is that it? Voila, right? I mean, centuries of struggle over Paul and James. Tonight, done. Right? We're finished. That's not a problem anymore. We've got the answer. I'm not... I'm not I mean, it's easy, right? Because the way I'm talking about it... You, but I don't, I don't think that. And there's still... Right? There's, there's lots of things we still haven't talked about. But I think that's the place to begin. That's the place to begin. You begin with this, this simple idea that James just lays right out in verse 14 is he's not making a blanket statement about justifying faith. He's making a specific statement about empty false faith, which can never save anybody. 
can never save anybody. And so when, when he, and he says justified by works, I think he means the works that, are the, that flow from true faith. Because he says, you know, you say you have faith, show me. But I'll show you my faith by what? My works. And so I think when he says you see a man is justified by works, I think what he means is the kind of works that flow from true faith. It is a, it is a time-proven adage, but it, I know it's an adage, but it's a time-tested and time-proven time proven adage, an old Reformation adage, and that is we are justified by faith alone. But the faith that justifies is never alone. It's never an empty set. It's never just a confession. Right? And sometimes you can say that, and it, some people will say that's just sort of, yeah, now it's just, now it's become jargon. It's just lingo. But it's the, it's the, it's the truth. It's not really that different than Jesus saying a tree is known by its fruit. Right? By their fruits you will know them. Why? Because that's how true faith shows itself. Now, we haven't even started. This just now, you know what we've done now? Now we're going to end, which means I've just opened the door to well, how much? How much fruit? Right? So there's a, we haven't got to that question yet. That's a big question. And I would say at that point, just, just, I mean, since I have like three minutes, I can, I'll just say it. At that point, I think the, the, the question of how much is sort of the wrong question. Um, it's not sort of about quantifying amounts. The Bible talks about fruit or no fruit. It doesn't talk about perfection, right? I mean, Paul knew Abraham's life pretty well, I think. I think Paul knew the Old Testament at least as well as I do. Um, and I, can, I know from reading the Old Testament that uh, Abraham's life was not perfect. I know that's true. Just like, just like uh, when uh, Brian was speaking earlier about Gideon. Gideon's in chapter 11 of Hebrews, but I doubt the writer of the Hebrews was unaware of the whole story of Gideon. Right? And you understand what I'm, when I say that. There's absolutely no way he was unaware of it. I mean, think about it. Um, Samson, of all people, is in Hebrews 11. That gives hope to everybody. <laughs> Right? I mean, he's one of the coolest people in the Old Testament, but as, a, as an example, not so good. Um, he wasn't really cool either. But he kind of was. So anyway, anyway, not to make light of the whole thing, but I don't think we need to ask, well, how much fruit is enough? That's, the, question, the, question is, the question is, is the nature of true saving faith in Jesus, which shows itself in the fruit of faith, the works that we do. And that shouldn't frighten us off if we stand in a reformational tradition, because Paul ends, Paul ends Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 by saying what? For by grace you are saved through faith, and not by works, not, not by yourself, as a gift of God, not by works so that no one should boast. For, and then what? For we are what? His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works which God prepared in advance that we would walk in them. Chapter, verse 1 and 2 starts off, you used to be dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to walk, in which you used to live. But then Paul gets to the end and saying, having been saved by faith alone, through grace alone, having been saved by faith alone, through grace alone, you have now been recreated so that you are no longer the dead, doing dead works, living under condemnation, but you are doing what? Living a new life. Because that's the thing, that shines the, the light on the glory of God in salvation by grace alone. So God 
recreates us and makes us new so that we will live for him. That shouldn't shock us. It shouldn't shock us that the New Testament has a lot to say about the way we live. But it's, you know, the, it's, it's all about the source of where that comes from. That source being the gift of the Spirit. Um, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, or Deuteronomy 30. You know, Deuteronomy 10, God says, you need a new heart. Circumcise your heart. Deuteronomy 30, I'm going to... Deuteronomy 30, I'm going to bring you up out of exile, exile when I do, guess what? You're getting a new heart so that you will follow me and obey me. In the new covenant, that's what we get. We don't have to shy away from it. We just have to remember where, where it comes from and the source of it. So anyway, I, I hope it's been helpful. I know it's been kind of a barrage, um, but I, I really like talking about James, and uh, it's, one of my favorite, it's one of my favorite texts in the Bible. And, uh, of course, if you, have, if you want to talk about it, we can talk about it. But if there's, if there's some snacks or something, time of fellowship. If you want to talk about any of these issues, I'd, be, I'd love to talk about it with you. So I hope it's been helpful just to be here and think about it. Um, I want to encourage you to, to preach through James if you haven't done so. Uh, or if you've, if you've maybe just thought, uh, I don't know, I've got to do something there. I want to encourage you to do it and, and to uh, share it with your people and then be ready to answer all those questions about how many, how much, how many works do I need? How many apples does, have, does there have to be on the tree? Right? Because you'll have to answer those questions. Those are great questions and ones that need to be answered. But, you know, but this is, I think this is where you start. Let's close in prayer and we'll go have fellowship together. Lord, thank you for this time we've had together. Thank you for your word that teaches us in so many ways. And Lord... Uh, your ways are not our ways. Your ways and you are, you are above us as far as the heavens are from the earth. And so, Lord, we don't, we don't suppose to know all the mysteries of faith or all your workings, but we are so grateful to you, Lord, that you have condescended to give us words in language that we can comprehend so that we can know and understand the true and living God who calls into existence things that are not. And that you, the living God, who needs nothing and lacks nothing, have through your grace, through Christ our Savior, declared us to be right in your eyes. Not because of anything that we have ever done, are doing, or will do, but because of the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. So Lord, make us new, work out your declaration of righteousness in us so that people would see our good works and glorify you. Help us, Lord, to be true to your word, not just parts of it, not just the parts we gravitate towards, but the whole thing. And give us eyes to hear, I mean eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to show us and what you are showing us and all the things beyond imagination that we are yet to see in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.